Romans chapter 8 today, so if you open up a copy of God's Word and turn there, and of course, as soon as I say Romans chapter 8, you probably go, oh, he's going for the low-hanging fruit, isn't he? That's the, that's the best passage in all of Scripture. And I will say, being a young pastor, it's probably easier at first for me to do these low-hanging fruit passages, but wow, what a profound chapter of the Bible this is that we're going to be able to study today. But while you're turning there, I wanted to let you know that it's this Wednesday that Sarah and I will celebrate our ninth anniversary married. Amen. And while nine years might not sound like a long time to you, it sure does feel long for Sarah. So definitely, <laughs> just kidding. No, by God's grace, we, uh, we have a great relationship. And, and uh, one, the reason I bring this up is one of the things we do, as many of you for your anniversaries, is we get each other something new, something the other person likes and wants, and we get that gift for them. Now, normally, Sarah is so content. She does not have a list. Isn't it true? You don't, she just says, just buy me a coffee gift card or something. So I usually have to just surprise her. But me, I'm a little high maintenance. I've got, a, I've got I love new stuff. So I always have a list. And this year I said, baby, I said, we just started our new church and I got a nice new Bible. Now I need a nice new Bible case. And so she got me this handmade leather case. It's Buffalo, American Buffalo. I mean, this thing is the Rolls Royce of Bible cases. And of course, it's got that smell. Yes, yes, yes. Now, you might say, Cody, this is a little excessive. I, you know, I like what I like. I like what I like. And in fact, it doesn't stop there. I love mowing. Yes, I'm a lawn care nut. And I also got early my Father's Day present. I said, babe, I know what I want for Father's Day, but can I get it now? She says, fine. It's a lawn striper. Does anybody... Just, I didn't know this, but people don't even know what that is. This is a massive wheel that you roll behind your grass to get stripes so bright they make your neighbors cry, all right? <laughs> yes, this is something I enjoy, new things. I love the new leather smell. I'm a sucker for new gadgets, all right? I'm ashamed to admit it. But you know what? I think many of you here also like new stuff for example, I bet you can complete this sentence. That new car, aha, uh-huh. see, I told you, I'm not the only one. Newness, we like new stuff. Now, tangible items of this world, of course, it's okay to like them. We should not identify with them. We should not love them. We should not be so enamored with them that they take all of our focus. Rather, I think we're designed, though, to love the concept of newness, like for example, the babies that have just been born. How wonderful is that new life, right? That's just a joy. It's natural for humans to love new th- newness. What about flowers that bloom or seasons that change? Isn't it so encouraging when you see that new growth in the springtime after a long winter, right? So newness is, is a wonderful thing that God has instilled us with. And I know that if we took a poll, there's probably the people that say, I like the classic, the antique. And there definitely is some value there, but the cliche, nothing beats new, right? And that is so true. Now, as Christians today, and in Romans 8, we're going to be studying the concept of brand new. But as I said, it's not about a tangible brand new. It's not an earthly item that we pursue. The newness we receive is eternal. And it comes through Christ. And as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, The old, once we come to Christ, the old is gone away 
and behold, we are a new creation. And so today, we're going to study that newness. We're going to study in Romans 8, 1 through 17, this section of verses that walks us through the miraculous newness coming from Christ. So the title is The New Way. If you have a sheet here, you can follow along. I did notice the, pa- the last two points, the, the verses are wrong, so I'll correct those when we get there. But let's read Romans 8, 1 through 17, so that we can understand this context, and then we will dig into expositing each verse to understand what it means in the context. So here's Romans 8, 1 through 17. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit." For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit, it is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for these verses. What great encouragement we find here that through the Spirit, you have given us newness of life, new privileges, new obligations. Father, help us as we study this word to go through each verse, understanding the meaning as it was intended, that we can apply to our lives and then go and tell others. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of us know Romans, right? The book of Romans is perhaps, as I said, the the lowest hanging fruit book in all of the Bible. This is the book we go to if we're telling someone how they can be saved, right? The Romans road. But if you're here today and you don't know a lot about Romans, uh, it was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, obviously. And this church was made up, since it was the first century, they all had Uh, past that they were before they came to Christ. It was made up of former Jews and then a group called Gentiles. Jews obviously were those who were, uh, before they came to Christ, attempting to keep the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. 
and Gentiles were anyone who was not a Jew. So most of us today, we would be considered before we came to Christ, a Gentile, right? Non-Jewish. And what we see in Romans, I wish we could go through all seven chapters before this, and I do encourage you, please do study those chapters. But what we see a lot in the lead up to chapter eight is a discussion of how these two groups were formerly under the law. Now, the word the law applies differently to these groups. Of course, to the Jews, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. That was the law they were expected and told to keep. But of course, what we read in Romans, it was impossible to do. And because they were unable uh, to keep the law or unable to, they were guilty of their punishment. And so they had to continually offer animal sacrifices. And as messy as these were, they still did not remove their sin permanently. It was just a covering for their sins. So there was necessary for the Jewish people a new law to come in that would permanently forgive them. Now the Gentiles also were under the law, but of course they didn't serve the law of Moses. We know uh, if they were not religious, what law did they serve then? What law did they try to serve and couldn't keep? God says in Romans 2.15, the law of the conscience, which is written on everybody's heart. That means no one has an excuse no one can live their life saying, I didn't know about the laws, God. No, he's written it on the conscience of every man, every woman, that if they sin, they know they have just breached God's holy expectations. And so Jews and Gentiles alike, under the law, but couldn't keep it. And so there's this constant comparison here in uh, Romans, this comparison between... I've been here long enough to know that happens, right? How to Kill a Moment, 101. All right. A lot of what we read early in Romans is a comparison between how these two groups were expected to keep the law but could not, and so thus the former needed to be fulfilled or completed or replaced with a new law. And of course, we know, we read, that is Jesus. He has come. He has fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. He has died in our place, and through faith, he has given us the credit of righteousness, and we stand forgiven. That is what precedes chapter number eight. And so the Christian does not have to fear death any longer. The Christian does not have to worry about keeping the law in perfection because when they stumble, the blood of Christ covers their sin, and they stand still forgiven. Now, don't, don't mistake this. Romans 6 talks all about this is not a license to sin. This is not a permission to go just have an unchanged life. It says if you've given your life to Christ and you've been baptized with Christ, you have died to sin. You can't live in it any longer. Grace is not there. That's fake faith. We see that a lot. If you're genuine, then what we see in chapters one through seven is that even though we are unable to keep the law because Jesus came and completed it for us and gave us his righteousness, the credit there, we are justified and we are forgiven. So with this forgiveness, with the spirit that comes to every believer, we now have the newness, these new way privileges that we're going to go through. And it's my hope that each privilege would inspire you today to be thankful, but to also be motivated to go and tell others what Christ has done in you. Let's look at the first new thing. We have received a new freedom Look at verses one through four, specifically verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, 
who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If I took a survey, I guarantee many of you, this is your favorite verse. Possibly one of the most profound in all of Scripture, that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. It's a freedom. And the word that stands out to me in this sentence is now. In other words, previously, as we see in Romans, the wages of sin was death. All had sinned and fallen short of God's glory and were deserving of a punishment. But now, therefore, there is no condemnation. Because of the spirit of Christ that dwells in us, where we were formerly judged, guilty, sentenced, and convicted, we've now been acquitted and our debt of sin is erased. As the Old Testament says, it's been removed as far as the east is from the west. We are not condemned any longer. What's the Christian response to this? Well, I tell you today, if it's not a shout of hallelujah, then I don't know if you're genuinely saved. How can a Christian not celebrate and scream from the mountaintops that they are condemned no more and praise the Lord in that? We should be praising God every single day that we have no condemnation. Don't live your life in gloom over your past. If Christ has forgiven it, then you need to move on too because we are expected to rejoice in this, that there is no condemnation. I'm reminded of the American slaves when they were liberated at the emancipation of slavery. We have recorded that the slaves wrote many new songs, new spirituals about their freedom. Why? Because they were liberated and a liberated people is a singing people. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. That was a spiritual that came to be at the emancipation of slavery that Martin Luther King quoted. And we too should be a singing people, if not literally, then with our lives. Showing others the gospel through our daily conduct and our words and our actions. How can this be though? How can we so vile, so deserving of condemnation be forgiven? Well, it tells us in verse two, that the law of the Spirit and Christ Jesus has made us free. See, we no longer serve that former law that condemns us because the law of the Spirit is now reigning, which is the law that Christ brought in. And we're not condemned under it, but again, why and how? Look at verses three and four. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see, because Christ came, he became a sin offering in order to meet the full requirements. Remember, the expectation of the law was that it was to be kept. We couldn't do it. Who could? God. So he sent himself in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now we know he did not sin, and that's how he met the full requirements. And there's no condemnation, brother and sister, because Christ was condemned in your place. You know the song, Man of Sorrows? What a name. The second verse says this, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. That's not just a theory, that is scripture. Verse number three, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled 
in us. But he takes it one step further. Not only was he condemned, and in so doing, condemning sin, he then met the full righteous requirement of the law in us, the ones who were not sinless. This is the doctrine of sanctification, in which God sees us as righteous. He's literally covered us with the blood of Christ, picked us up from the, the way he views the world, which is going to receive his judgment someday, and put us in another place in which he views us as holy and set apart. What a miracle. What a thing we should rejoice about, that we are free through the Spirit. But we also have, number two, a new mindset. Verses five through eight talk about a new mindset. Now, how important is a mindset? Well, I, as many of you know, my civilian, oh, civilian, I used to be in the military too. So my main, ugh, my main job is to be a teacher. And so mindset is so important to teachers. In fact, we have professional development about this all the time, that we should work on growth mindset in which a kid is not trained to be, you know, thinking that they can't do something, but instead given the skills to believe they can do it with practice. What about coaches? Anybody a coach in here, little league or older? There's a couple. How important is the mindset of your team, the game plan, the focus? You don't just go out there and say, um, I guess we'll go try and score or something. I have a suspicion it's not going to end very well for your team. The mindset is everything. And that's the same with the spirit. Verses 5, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, obviously. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. Kind of a rhetorical verse here. It's like almost duh, right? You put your mind on the flesh, you're going to get the flesh. You put your mind on the spirit, that's your life. Think about what we see here. Let's read the rest of these verses about what serving the flesh results in. Number six, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity or hostility against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. God. Did you see what serving the flesh results in? Guys, I'm not here to do scare tactics, but I am here to read the Bible. And I don't know about you, but death is pretty much as scary as it can get if you don't know God. And that's what you get if you serve the flesh. It says it. Hostility to God. Obviously, we look at the world around us. Are they not hostile to God? lack of submission to God's law, and then an inability. Can't even please God. Think about your former life. You know this is true. Not only is it in God's word, but you've lived it. Your former life before Christ was filled with everything I just read from Romans chapter eight there. But the newness of life, praise the Lord. We're gonna see the spiritual mindset removes that. In fact, look at what it says in verse six. What does serving the Spirit result in? Having that mindset of the Spirit? Life and peace. The exact reverse opposite. Where there is death in the mindset of the flesh, there is life in the mindset of the Spirit. Where there is hostility in the mindset of the flesh, there is peace in the Spirit. Where there's doom and gloom in the flesh, there is hope in the Spirit and where there's an inability to please God in the flesh, there is a full ability to please God, not because of us, but because of the Spirit in us. 
He sees us as fully pleasing him. So I ask you, don't you want that mindset? If you have it, praise God today. But if you don't have that, that mindset, don't you want the peace that can come over you the moment you give your life to Christ? Because I'm telling you, every believer here today knows exactly what I'm saying. The moment you trusted in Christ, what a peace came over your soul that you no longer had to fear your physical death because that wasn't where it stopped. It went beyond. There is people in the world that actually believe we are here for this earthly life and that when we die, we become worm food. That is not a message of hope. That is not a message I want to put my life in, yet so many people do it. And while I love, love new little gadgets, they put their hope in that. They identify with that, the flesh and the things of this world. May we not do that. May we trust God, turn in faith to him, and put our mindset in the spirit. Now, when we do this, when we trust in the Lord, we receive, number three, a new indwelling presence. This is the mark of a Christian. This is the mark of who is saved and who is not. <laughs> Let's look at verses 9 through 11. I want you to pay attention to the number of times that we read the Spirit who is in you, okay? Here we go. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies... No, oh, excuse me. That's, that is totally not the right verse. The air blew my pages. And I was epic, too, in my voice, wasn't I? 9 through 11. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Four times. Four times we read very clearly the statement that the Spirit is in us. It is not just with us. It is literally inside of every person who believes. And again, this is the mark then of Rome. You know, we know in Romans 9, the mark of someone who is a, a basically a fake, a phony. It says if you're in the flesh, then you, God doesn't dwell in you. But if you live in the Spirit, you belong to God. If he does not have the Spirit, he is not his. Right, so we can know that there are many people who profess to be Christians, but they're fraudulent because they don't have the Spirit. And how do we know they don't have the Spirit? Well, in so many passages in the Bible, James 2 is one example. Fruit, people, fruit. The Spirit will bear fruit in your life. The real indwelling presence produces fruit. And if you don't have evidence of that, then your faith is dead, which means you were fake. There's people that come to church all the time who do it for various reasons other than to give their heart and mind to God. Maybe it's because they want to look good amongst their neighbors. Maybe it's because they want friendship and social camaraderie. Maybe it's because they, again, just want to uh, be a good influence on their family mor morally or whatever. That None of that makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is the presence of God in your life, the spirit in your body, literally in verse 10, we see that this spirit is living. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the spirit, it is what? Life because of righteousness. How fortunate are we to live in with the presence of the living spirit? We, we are not like those false religions of the world that worship idols. Buddha, a little statue. 
He's not literally in you. They're fake gods. They don't have direct communion. We do because of the Spirit. The Spirit literally in us intercedes for us. And look at what this literal indwelling presence then means. Of course, with the body being dead, that means that the Spirit is life. In other words, those who serve the flesh will die. Those who, who have the Spirit will live. And then that leads us to understand that we have the hope of eternal life. And in verse 11, it says this, but if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. You do not have to fear death if you have the Spirit because your home is not of this world. It is beyond. It is in heaven. And that is where Christ will resurrect your mortal body to live forever in heaven with him. No fear of death. No sting in death. The world does not have this. They do not have this. They still serve the flesh. Their mindset is the flesh. And their death, they think, will be the end. But there will be a second death. And this passage does not go into it. We know in Scripture the second death is going to be eternal as well as the new life that we are going to. But we don't want any, anyone to go there, do we? We don't want them to have that eternal separation from God. And so the indwelling presence is how we can know that we do have hope and we want others to have hope too. Now, when you do trust in Christ, you've got his Holy Spirit living in you. Then number four, you, believer, have an obligation. In verses 12 and 13, it says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Clearly, real Christians are obligated to put to death the flesh. This is not a request. This is not a you should. This is you must. We're in debt to do this. Because if we don't, we will die. We haven't really come to Christ. Someone who hasn't turned from their sin, also called repentance, hasn't given their life through faith. Because we know in Scripture that a genuine believer says, Lord, I can't do this on my own, but I know you've finished it, and I trust in that. And at that moment, that true belief results in a 180-degree turn the other way. And while we will not be perfect, our, not, our, our life is not defined any longer by that way we were walking because we have turned. This is literally called mortification, which means it's a subduing in the dictionary, subduing your fleshly desires. Again, we can't do this on our own, but we submit through Christ. And so we, we see here that this is how, once again, we can see who is a true Christian. There's unregenerated people living in every single church because they think that they have the ability or they think that church is a social club. And in so doing, they haven't put to death the flesh. Someone truly believing has put to death the flesh. Now, unregenerated people, maybe not in church specifically, but just unregenerate people in general, of course, they're still serving the flesh. And as a result, they are going to die. This is, again, I say, I'm not here to do a scare tactic. I'm here to read the scriptures. And it says here that they will die. You see, why are they going to die? Well, they're not willing to give up the passing pleasures of sin. They fail to see that there would be pleasure in serving God, the pleasure of life and joy, 
happiness and peace and hope. Their definition is the flesh. They identify with the flesh. The world around us, again, is so clearly ensnared in this way of thinking. A world that tells us you can be any gender. A world that tells us you can marry anybody. A world that tells us it doesn't matter what God has spelled out. It matters what you want to be. Be you. You be you. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us to put to death the flesh and to become who Christ wants us to be. And so if you're here today, I'm glad you're here today. But if you have not put to death the flesh, in other words, you have not fully trusted in Christ, then you're destined to die. People outside of our church, possibly people in our church. If you live for the flesh, you will not live for the spirit and you will die. We have an obligation if we call ourselves Christians to put to death the flesh. What mixed message are we sending the world if we don't? If we have one foot in the world, we're getting drunk on Saturday or Friday or whatever, and then on Sunday we walk in and we say, you know, hey church, that's a mixed message. It's hurting our testimony. I'm not saying that a Christian is perfect. Romans 7, Paul says, look, I, what I know to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, those things I do. It's this tough thing, but the Christian is not identified with the flesh. They're convicted by their sin. And so you don't have to worry if you're truly saved. Good, uh, genuine believers, excuse me, in 1 John 5 are promised eternal life. What I'm talking about is someone who hasn't even put to death the flesh at all. And that's what Romans is talking about here, that if you don't do that, if you don't repent, you don't have real faith and you don't have life. We must be genuine and so that we can be a witness to the world around us. Now, once we've gotten our obligation understood, we move on to understand the fact that we have a new identity. And our identity is one of adoption in verses 14 and 15. For as many as are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. We did not receive the spirit of bondage to fear, but the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Isn't adoption beautiful, those of you that have experienced it? You have a child who, for whatever reason, maybe it was uh, taken out of a home that was bad, or maybe just the mother couldn't have the baby, but the child who was under a former identity is given a completely new one. And they're accepted and loved and cherished. They're given a a home and a future, and all the same luxuries. This is what God has done through Jesus and the Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit are, as verse 14 says, adopted into the sonship of God. What's the purpose of this adoption? Well, in verse 15, we see it's not so that we can be forcibly chained and pulled, and, oh, I don't want to be, obviously, that's not a true child. No, that the relationship is one in which we are able to cry out, Abba, Father. What does Abba Father mean? We see it three times in Scripture here, and then Jesus says Abba Father in Mark 14, 36, and Paul says it again in Galatians 4, 6, and every time the context is that it is an intimate cry out to our Father that only the children of God can appeal. While the world calls him God and may even take his name in vain, we're the only ones that can say Abba Father. The best comparison would be on earth, our children can say, Daddy, my two girls are the only ones, only kids that can call me Daddy. They have a privilege. They have, they're my children. And that is what we see here with Abba Father. We are given this new identity. 
this adoption that doesn't put a smile on your face. I don't know what will. That you belong to the creator God. Now, our identity is verified by the presence of the Spirit. Once again, so many times in this section, we see who is really saved. It's the one who has the Spirit. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It is a direct marker of our salvation. And praise the Lord that we are identified and verified by the Spirit. We are not, our identity is not in our own performance. It's not in our popularity or our pedigree or the things we're gonna do. It's in the saving work of Jesus and what he's already done. That is who we identify with. Finally, when we have the Spirit, we have a new inheritance. Look at the words that are mentioned in verse 17. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. We are heirs. We're not just forgiven on earth. We are given the full inheritance of heaven, the entire jackpot, the penthouse, the, the full reward. But that would be amazing if we stop right there. But it says joint heirs with Christ. How can this be? How can former, former sinners that, that lived in the flesh be given the same reward that Christ is? Many of you might have siblings, and you know in your parents' will, it says divide 50-50. God goes one step further, and he says 100%, 100%, 100%. Believable love and mercy. That is the only answer to how this could be. But God, that's the only answer. How, how could this possibly be explained with any earthly description? It can't. God's love and mercy and grace and forgiveness is the only way that we can understand that we are going to be joint heirs with Christ, receiving the same joys eternally as him. Now, the journey to get there is not going to be easy. Look also in verse 17. So if, we, if indeed we suffer with him, it's gonna be bumpy. We're gonna have valleys. Ask Brother Tim. He's going through a valley right now. We praise the Lord that he spared his life. But nobody wants to have their back broken and go through the pain of that recovery. But Tim, I, I, I'm happy to say after meeting with him, he is willing to do that for the cross and to witness to anybody that this journey might put him in touch with. And that's what this life will have. It will have sufferings and valleys, but the reward at the end will outweigh any pain that we experience on earth. Now, how many of you know the phrase from, I believe it's Wizard of Oz, there's no place like home? This is how we're promised heaven will be. There will be no other place like it, this inheritance. You know, when I come home after a long day of teaching with kids, chasing little chickens around all day, um, there's no place like coming home. Be with my wife, be with my kids. We relax, we eat a meal, we play outside, whatever it might be, it's just a complete release of stress. But heaven will be even way more unparalleled than this. I mean, just to compare it, like, have you ever been on a flight and been upgraded to first class? I don't know. That hasn't happened to me, but I hear that happens. Anyway, I can guarantee you if they put me in first class, yay ain't gonna get me to go back to that main cabin. Not the world's best example because heaven, again, will supersede anything we can possibly imagine. 
But that is where we're going. That is the inheritance for those who have the Spirit today. Now, this world we know is not our home. It's never been. But with the Spirit, we have hope to finally go home. I hope, though, that you do have the Spirit today. If you don't have the Spirit, again, I'm here to say there is no eternal life for you. There is eternal death and separation from God. You must give your life to Christ. Believe in his finishing worth. Put the death the flesh and live for him. And you will have that spiritual life that we're talking about. Now, until we go home, there is work to do, and that's where this sermon is directed. You have work to do in your daily life. You need to live your, your daily life every single day in your interactions with your neighbors, in your interactions with your family, in your interactions with your friends, showing them the newness of the Spirit. How are they gonna know about the Spirit if they don't see the newness? They're not gonna wanna change their life. The devil is cunning. He makes this life seem pretty good sometimes without Christ. He makes it look that way with our sports that we love, with our material things that we love. But we must show them that there is newness beyond that, that there is hope in. Now, tomorrow is Memorial Day to conclude today. And as Brother Brian so well said, we, we honor the fallen tomorrow. We honor their sacrifice and what they've done because it's given us freedom. And as Americans, we have freedom more than anyone in the world. That's because of their sacrifice. But I encourage you tomorrow, you know, not just to barbecue. I'll be barbecuing, but don't just do that. My wife and I and the kids, we always go with COVID, it didn't happen, but we always before that would go to the VA cemetery and visit a random grave and just lay a flower there. We just want that to be something that we always, our girls remember the sacrifice. But while you're at that, if you do something like that, ponder to Christ and his sacrifice. As Brian said, he died in the line of service. He paid the ultimate sacrifice because he's risen again and fulfilled that he is the son of God. We have hope. We have new life. The old can be taken away. The new can be ushered in. But you must repent. You must believe. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe, you will be saved. You will receive eternal forgiveness. You will receive no condemnation. This is not difficult. This is easy to understand. Christ has done the work. Just accept it. Be genuine, of course, but accept. Today's no better day. Right? We're gonna have an invitation in a minute, and if God is stirring at your heart, now is the time to make it settled and come and give your life to Christ so that you can partake in the new way and have a home in heaven.